Hello and welcome to Malice of Forethought UK, a true crime podcast which will bring you some of the famous, infamous and lesser known true crime stories from here in the UK and across the globe. I'm your host, Kel, and all the facts and information have been researched by me and are in the public domain. As with all true crime podcasts, there may be some descriptions of crimes that are distressing or disturbing so listener's discretion is advised at all times. Sit back, listen, and feel free to join our forum, a link of which is in the episode description, to discuss this and other true crime stories. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of With Malice of Forethought UK, a true crime podcast. Today, I'm moving a little bit further afield outside of the UK and we're over in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia in the United States. I'm also going a little bit further back in time to the 1980s, in fact, the early 1980s, 1983. So to put the life of a teenager in the 1980s into context, I did a little bit of digging in the internet and I came across daily life and popular culture in the 1980s and in particular American life in the 1980s, which would give the listeners who were born after 1980 a little bit more information as to what life was like because it was very different. There was obviously many new types of technology and forms of entertainment emerging, such as video games, but you didn't get these in every household. Broken marriages were becoming more commonplace and the divorce rates were reaching their peak by the latter half of the 1970s and they remained very high in the early 1980s, only dropping again in the late 1990s. So as a result, single parent families were becoming a significant part of the cultural landscape of the time which increased the reliance on daycare with many small children spending time in nurseries during the day and also it meant that a lot of children spent time with grandparents as well. Because average salaries were increasing, house prices were increasing, price of cars, the price of food, everything was fluctuating and also there was an increased amount of leisure time and the American public yearned for entertainment. As I said, fortunately, there were several technological advances um, in home entertainment. The most prominent in the early 80s was the rise of cable television, which obviously gave a lot more viewing choice and that brought MTV, um, sports TV like ESPN and also kids TV such as Nickelodeon. So kids would be rushing home to watch all of the latest episodes of all of the new cartoons and TV programs that were coming out because there was designated children's channels but also that meant there was a successful line in toys and video games and a lot of commercials to made specifically for children and teens at the time to tout these products. But at that time, yes, there was Atari's, 
there was the rise of the video game but one of the things that there wasn't at that time was prevalence of mobile phones so daily life and popular culture you would rush home from school you'd watch your cartoons watch your, your kids tv you would rush back out to spend time with your friends people would go to arcades to play video games but your parents wouldn't know where you were unless you either left them a note called them from a call box onto the landline at home or told another member of your family where you were at that time and that becomes very important in relation to this case because it explains why the parents involved in this case or in particular the mother didn't really question when her daughters went around that was quite normal it was quite normal not to be able to text your mum and say oh I'm going to be late it's all it was also quite normal to say to gran oh gran if you see mum I'm just popping down to my friends I'll be home later tonight and then you would come in at whatever time your parents said you had to come in if it was a school night nine ten o'clock what have you and that was expected it wasn't expected that they could get hold of you they could look on your Instagram feed and see where you were there was no Facebook nothing like that there was no social media everything was done by either a, a direct telephone call to a landline or in the alternative you left a note or told a member of your family where you are so I hope that gives a little bit of background and um, enjoy listening so this story tells the tale of the Smith family because this podcast is based on a, a murder in America from the 1980s it has been quite difficult to get absolute drilled down information as to what happened but I have be, been able to put together a timeline of the story I just want to say at the very beginning in some websites I did hear mention that the Smith family were a family of five in other websites they were a family of four so I'm still not a hundred percent sure if Mr and Mrs Smith also had a son but I'm going to leave him out of this story because I couldn't get a name or any details as to who he was or where he was at the time that all of this took place Kathleen Smith and her husband David had had a turbulent year in 1983 but it was now mid-December and the year was coming to a close. Earlier that year they had separated and to add to the stress, the home that the marital home was having some renovation work done, which was leaving it in quite a long-term state of disarray. To add to the stress, the work was being done by Kathleen's half-brother, Dewitt Crawley. Kathleen and Dewitt had the same father but different mothers but Dewitt had been quite difficult while he was doing the work at the house and that's an understatement he quite often didn't turn up for work when he did he would become quite agitated he was known to lose his temper and his work just wasn't up to standard so Kathleen decided that she was going to sack her own brother and employ a professional carpenter to finish the job. 
She had spoke about this with her other brother, Milton Crawley, and also her mother. And Milton had warned her that he had had the same problems not long previously when he'd hired Dewitt to do some work on his property. And when he'd sacked Dewitt for exactly the same reasons, his poor workmanship and his lack of timekeeping, Dewitt had actually turned on his brother and made threats against his own brother and his brother's family. So Kathleen was quite worried how Dewitt was going to react when she sacked him. But David had moved out of the family home and Kathleen was still living there with their daughters, Terry, who was aged 18, and Leslie, aged 16. And all the work, all the renovation work was being done around her. Although David had moved out following the separation, he still remained very close by and was having regular contact with their daughters. And Kathleen also had support from her mother, Mary Elizabeth Crawley, who was Dewitt's stepmother. And Mary only lived a few doors away from her daughter Kathleen, so they were regular visitors to each other's houses and the girls would quite often go and see their grandma after school. So the family remained close. On the 19th of December 1983, Kathleen had quite a busy day at work ahead of her and also had arranged that she would go late night Christmas shopping after work for Christmas presents for the girls. But when she got up that morning, Terry said she wasn't feeling very well and wanted to stay home from school. So Kathleen reluctantly said, you stay home from school today. I've got a really long day at work, so I can't take the day off. And then I've got to go out Christmas shopping after work. But I'll check in with you by telephone during the day. Then she left the house for work. At about two o'clock that afternoon, Terry called her mother at work and said that Uncle Dewitt had arrived at the house unannounced. So Kathleen asked her daughter Terry if she knew why her brother had turned up. He was no longer doing the carpentry work on the house. There was no reason for him to be there. And Terry had said that her uncle had come by to pick up his carpentry tools. Kathleen was worried that her half-brother might be quite angry for being replaced. And she didn't like the idea of her daughter having to deal with that, particularly as she wasn't feeling very well. And Dewitt was known to be threatening when sacked. So she asked her daughter if she thought her uncle Dewitt was mad. But Terry just cried down the phone and Kathleen couldn't really find what was going on. So she insisted that her daughter asked Dewitt to leave and call her back as soon as he'd left the house. So Kathleen was at work and waited for her daughter to call to say that everything was fine. She had quite a lot of cause to worry, apart from, as previously mentioned, Dewitt had a history of inappropriate outbursts. He'd made threats against his brother when his brother had sacked him, threats against his brother's family. He had, in fact, served time for manslaughter. When he was a teenager, he'd killed a young man. And so he also had a history of violence. But it was only a few minutes. Terry called, reassured her mum, it's okay, Uncle Dewitt's left. Everything's fine. So Kathleen thought, that's great. I don't need to change my plans. I can go Christmas shopping after work and everything's all okay. Kathleen had actually arranged that after she went Christmas shopping, she would go to her mother Mary's house. 
tape the presents there and hide them from her daughters. So she arrived at her mum's at about 8.30 that night. A brief chat between mum and daughter, Mary told her that Terry had actually spoken to her grandmother round about four o'clock and told her she was feeling so much better and had in fact herself decided she would go late night Christmas shopping and so wouldn't be in when mum got home. Mary also told her that Leslie, her 16-year-old granddaughter, had popped by straight after school. And Mary mentioned that she'd asked Leslie to go home and turn out the basement light, as the light was visibly shining and could be seen from outside in the street. That's because the way the house was built, there was a window below ground level, a small window, and when the basement light was on, it would create a glow into the street and Mary had seen this and was quite worried that other passers-by would see it and realise that the house was in darkness at the top the basement light was on underneath and so Leslie being Leslie had said that's fine grandma and she'd gone off home she'd not returned to her grandmother's house so Mary had assumed she'd either decided to stay at home on her own or had actually gone on to a friend's house, which was something that she mentioned she may do. So Kathleen and her mother was having a brief chat for about half an hour when suddenly Dewitt appeared at Mary's house. He told Kathleen he'd just popped by mother's house on the off chance of Kathleen being there because he'd just been over to Kathleen's house and he went, wanted to collect his tools but the house was in darkness so Kathleen was obviously quite concerned at this point questioning why he would be coming round at nine o'clock at night to collect his tools when she'd spoken to Terry at two o'clock in the afternoon and he Terry had told her then that Uncle Dewitt had come round to collect his tools but Dewitt had a perfectly rational explanation he'd come round to collect his tools he'd got chatting to Terry He'd got distracted, he was late for his next appointment, so he'd left his tools in the hallway close to the door and he just needed to pop back, grab them and would be away again. So Kathleen said to Dewitt that he could pop round to the house and collect his tools. Whether or not she offered him a key, I, I've not really been able to find that information out, but there was talk that when she was discussing him going back to the house, he was very reluctant to go and was suggesting he wanted Kathleen to go and bring the tools back to Mary. But for some reason, Kathleen dismissed all of this strange behaviour and escorted him to her house. She arrived at the house and she unlocked the front door and it was quite clear Leslie had definitely been home because the basement light, which could have been seen, according to Mary from the street, was now switched off and the house was in mostly in darkness. The way the house was designed was that there was a porch, but in the past it had been enclosed with windows. So instead of it being a wooden deck porch with a, a front door, it was now a front door into a porch, which then led into the next front door into the hallway and when she opened the porch door she no noticed something very very strange the door swung open quite freely now that doesn't seem strange under normal circumstances but due to the renovation work 
a sofa and a table which were normally in the living room area had been put into the enclosed porch and usually when she opened the front door to the porch the door wouldn't open completely but now it swung back freely and she realised that the furniture had appeared to sort of be moved and pushed back out of the way. But her and Dewitt, they entered the porch of the house and the house was completely dark from the next door onwards, except she could see the glow of a lamp in the living room. She unlocked the other front door and his tools were just inside the hallway on the floor. So he quickly lifted them up and shot out of there and said he was in a rush and he had to go. At that point, Kathleen could have stayed at home, but the house was in darkness. The girls weren't there. There was all this renovation work going on. She really did not want to stay in the house on her own. So she decided she would go back to her mother's, stay for a while and then come back later on because the girls would be due back when it was curfew time and she wouldn't be in the house on her own. So she locked up and she went back to Mary's property. At about 10 o'clock, she left Kathleen left Mary's house again and went home. And this time she was expecting her to, the, both the girls to be back by then. So she opened the porch door and then she went in and heard a sort of strange, faint voice which was very odd, but then assuming at least one of the girls was home, it wasn't that odd, but it didn't sound like one of the girls. And then she realised, of course, it wasn't one of the girls. She could hear a radio playing. So she was inside this big porch and she was looking around for the source of this sound and realised that it was Terry's transistor radio, which was very, very odd because Terry never let that radio leave her room. And what was even stranger was the radio was on top of the sofa, which, as previously mentioned, was being stored in the enclosed porch, and the sofa had been pushed right back out of its usual place, and some sheetrock, or plasterboard as we would call it in the UK, had been positioned across the sofa, blocking her actual view of the radio and the sofa itself. At that point, Kathleen remembered that when she'd left the house in the morning, the sofa was behind the door and the sheetrock was propped upwards against the sofa. So now she realised that the sofa had been moved, the radio had been moved, the plasterboard had been moved. Nothing was where it should be. So she went into the actual house. And at that point, she noticed a few more unusual things in the hallway. So there was some misplaced ceiling tiles. There was clothes hanging over the edge of the banister leading up to the stairs. And a sewing machine had been dragged into the hallway and left in the middle of the hall floor. So she went to turn on the lights and the lights weren't working. Now, Kathleen must have been a very brave woman because at this point... I'd have probably stood in the hallway and shouted and shouted and tried to find out where my girls were and why the lights weren't working, etc. And probably gone and got a neighbour or gone back to my mother's and got her to come back to the house. But Kathleen didn't. In the dark, she went straight upstairs and into Terry's bedroom. 
And at that point, she saw that all of the dresser drawers were pulled out, clothes were strewn everywhere. So she went into Leslie's room, but Leslie's room was absolutely untouched, except that a bed looked as if it had been knocked out of place. So she went to her own bedroom, but found she couldn't open the door, and it was blocked by something heavy which was on the floor directly behind the door. So then she tried the bathroom door, and that was also blocked by something heavy behind the door. So at this point, the lights aren't working, the house is ransacked, she can't get into some of the rooms, she must have been burgled. She sees the smudges of something on the bathroom door. The things are not right. I would have probably called the police. I wasn't there at the time, so I'm not quite sure what was going through her mind. Maybe her girls were known to be quite messy and she, you know, she, she was used to coming home to a mess. But for whatever reason, at that point, she decided to ring her mother and asked if her mum would come over and bring a torch. So she went back downstairs to the landline and called mum. So Mary arrives with a flashlight a few minutes later and Mary suggests that they go straight down to the basement and check the fuse box because the lights must have been working earlier. Otherwise, why would she have needed to send Leslie to turn the lights off? So both women went down the stairs to the basement and they found immediately that the light bulb in the socket in the basement had been loosened. So once it tightened, all the lights came back on. And the illumination from the light in the basement showed that there was even further ransacking down in the basement of the property. Camping equipment had been pulled out and had been arranged in the corner to create a semicircle. And in that semicircle, one of her daughter's quilts from the bedroom was piled in the middle. So Kathleen reached down to pick it up, but then found something stopped her and she just couldn't do it. But then mother's instinct kicks in. She knows she has to. So she shoves all of the piles of camping equipment out of the way and yanks the duvet back very quickly. And to her absolute horror, she finds the naked body of a teenage girl underneath. So Kathleen and Mary are confronted with the horror of finding the naked body of a teenage girl. And their automatic assumption is it's Leslie. Leslie was sent back to the house. Leslie was told to turn the basement light off. They're in the basement. The light has been unscrewed. And there is this naked body of a teenage girl. And the re reason they couldn't recognise the body was because duct tape had been wrapped completely around the head, making it totally unrecognisable. All that was uncovered was one eye. So Kathleen holds this body of who she believes is her 16-year-old daughter, Leslie, in her arms. Electrical cord is wrapped around the body's neck and the hands are also wrapped with the same electrical cord and the hands have been bound together close to the neck very tightly. So she's almost been hog-tied at the top. 
hearing a moan from the body, she turns the body towards her and at that point looks down and there is blood everywhere. She frantically is tugging at this duct tape to get it off her daughter's face, but she's unable to remove it. So she drops the body and immediately runs upstairs to get a knife. She finds she can't even hold the knife. She's shaking so much. So she gives it to her mother who cuts the wire from around the hands and the neck and they scrape the tape off the face. And at that point, when the face is revealed, they realise it's not Leslie. This is um, Kathleen's elder daughter, 18-year-old Terry's body. And the moan that she heard was only in her imagination because clearly Terry had been dead for some time. The absolute horror of this is devastating for this woman. She runs out of the basement and back up the stairs to ring for an ambulance. But she's so struck with shock and grief, she can't even dial 911. So she runs out into the street to a neighbour's property to call for the emergency services. So things get a little bit confused at this point because while Kathleen is running to the neighbour's house to call 911, Mary has also found herself upstairs and she has been able to dial 911 from the property. Two police officers were immediately dispatched to the scene, but only a few minutes later, Kathleen has managed to explain to a neighbour what's happened. The neighbour has called 911 and the two officers are then told not to go to the house where the murder has taken place but instead to go to a neighbouring property because that's where the mother of the victim is. So two police officers, officers Louis Ritchie and Ronald Byrne arrive at Kathleen's neighbour's house and they accompany Kathleen back across the road to her home and they take her into the living room and ask her to stay there. Officer Byrne goes down to the basement to see where Terry is and Officer Ricci goes upstairs to check the upper floors because Kathleen said she couldn't get into two of the rooms. So while Kathleen's looking around her living room, at that point she finds that the house has been absolutely trashed. She hadn't even noticed it in the dark. Meanwhile, down in the basement, Officer Byrne checks Terry's body for vital signs and makes an initial assessment of the body, noting that rigor mortis has already set in. He sees bruising on her legs and a gaping wound to her cheek. So he leaves the basement, he goes upstairs and joins Officer Ritchie where the bedrooms and bathrooms are situated. There's nothing he can do for Terry at this time. So when Officer Byrne meets Officer Ritchie upstairs, it takes the two of them to push open the blocked bathroom door. What they see is another sight of horror. They find a partially submerged dead body in a bathtub full of bloody water. This body is found to be Kathleen's 16-year-old daughter, Leslie. Leslie's body had been bound with electrical cord 
and her legs were hanging over the side of the bath and that was what was causing the blockage to the door. The officers found blood on the floor at the scene and blood on the door of the bathroom which were the smudges that Kathleen had seen in the dark. They followed the trail through onto the landing and more blood going down the stairs towards the hall. So whilst Officer Ritchie stayed in the bathroom to make an assessment of Leslie's injuries, Officer Byrne proceeded downstairs and followed the trail of blood. When he reached the enclosed porch area where the sofa bed had been moved and the sheetrock was placed over it, he then saw the, a pair of legs jutting out from behind the boards. Officer Byrne moved the boards and found a man's body laying face down on the sofa. Kathleen was still in the living room at this point and Officer Byrne calls her over and asks her to identify the man's body but she doesn't know who it is. All she can see is a man laying face down and she does not recognise him. A pair of scissors are stuck in the back of his head and a bradle is embedded into his back. Officer Byrne turns him over so Kathleen can see his face and a nail has been driven into his cheek and through into his mouth. Probably through shock and the fact that he no longer lived in the matrimonial home so he was completely out of place and out of context, she didn't recognise her estranged husband David Smith at that time. So Officer Byrne starts to assess the scene around David's body and he notices that the ceiling tiles that Kathleen had noticed earlier were out of place, that actually several of them had been brought down from the ceiling and they were on the floor and appeared to be smeared with blood as though someone had removed the tiles where blood splatter had hit the ceiling and attempted to wipe the evidence away. At this point, they've got a crime scene with multiple victims and a mother who has lost her two daughters and her estranged husband and also a grandmother. So they have to designate the house a crime scene and call the on-duty forensic pathologist Dr Halbert Fillinger to the property. Now please note at this point I'm going to give you a list of the injuries and post-mortem information so reader discretion should be used listener discretion should also be used and i would suggest that if you do not want to listen to dr fillinger's observations you skip forward for a couple of moments if you read if you're listening to this on the podcast so on terry's body a grooved pattern is around her neck which was indicative of a ligature being placed around the throat and pressure being applied as mentioned earlier the ligature had been removed by Mary with the knife. Directly above where Terry's body had been found, there was a nail which had been in the rafters in the basement ceiling. This was bent downwards. And following the post-mortem of Terry's body, he noted bruising and tearing of the scalp due to multiple blunt impacts, facial stab wounds and bruises, strangulation and vaginal tearing. Terry's cause of death was established as being hung by electrical cord from the rafters via the bent nail which caused strangulation and all of the injuries to her body and the vaginal tearing were made when she was still alive. The actual cause of death 
was strangulation when she was strung up. On his initial examination at the scene of David Smith, Dr Fillinger noted those injuries which had been spotted by Officer Byrne. He further found at post-mortem 13 blunt trauma impact wounds to the head alongside extensive tearing and shattering of the skull and multiple deep stab wounds of the neck and back. Cause of death was established to be multiple trauma to the head along with stab wounds which had impacted into deep tissue to the trunk and neck. Leslie's cause of death was established to be drowning. However, prior to death, she had suffered multiple blunt force trauma head injuries and her skull was fractured in several places and she'd also sustained a, a fractured jaw. Forensically, all three victims had blood type B, but on Leslie's clothing, blood type A was discovered, so the investigators believed that different blood type belonged to the perpetrator. Terry had been raped, but Leslie had not. It's thought that Leslie's death was because she had come into the basement, witnessed the attack on her sister, and had therefore been attacked, knocked unconscious from the head injuries, and then drowned to stop her from raising the alarm. It was also thought that David had perhaps arrived at the scene and again come across the perpetrator attacking one or bo both of his daughters and again had been attacked to prevent him from either stopping the attack or from raising the alarm. So Officer Byrne starts to assess the scene around David's body and he notices that the ceiling tiles that Kathleen had noticed earlier were out of place, that actually several of them had been brought down from the ceiling and they were on the floor and appeared to be smeared with blood as though someone had removed the tiles where blood splatter had hit the ceiling and attempted to wipe the evidence away. At this point, they've got a crime scene with multiple victims and a mother who has lost her two daughters and her estranged husband and also a grandmother. So they have to designate the house of crime scene and call the on-duty forensic pathologist Dr Halbert Fillinger to the property. Now please note at this point I'm going to give you a list of the injuries and post-mortem information. So reader discretion should be used, listener discretion should also be used. And I would suggest that if you do not want to listen to Dr. Fillinger's observations, you skip forward for a couple of moments if, you read, if you're listening to this on the podcast. So on Terry's body, a grooved pattern is around her neck, which was indicative of a ligature being placed around the throat and pressure being applied. As mentioned earlier, the ligature had been removed by Mary with the knife. Directly above where Terry's body had been found, there was a nail which had been in the rafters in the basement ceiling. This was bent downwards. And following the post-mortem of Terry's body, he noted bruising and tearing of the scalp due to multiple blunt impacts, facial stab wounds and bruises, strangulation and vaginal tearing. 
Terry's cause of death was established as being hung by electrical cord from the rafters via the bent nail, which caused strangulation, and all of the injuries to her body and the vaginal tearing were made when she was still alive. The actual cause of death was strangulation when she was strung up. On his initial examination at the scene of David Smith, Dr Fillinger noted those injuries which had been spotted by Officer Byrne. He further found at post-mortem 13 blunt trauma impact wounds to the head alongside extensive tearing and shattering of the skull and multiple deep stab wounds of the neck and back. Cause of death was established to be multiple trauma to the head along with stab wounds which had impacted into deep tissue to the trunk and neck. Leslie's cause of death was established to be drowning. However, prior to death, she had suffered multiple blunt force trauma head injuries and her skull was fractured in several places and she'd also sustained a, a fractured jaw. Forensically, all three victims had blood type B, but on Leslie's clothing, blood type A was discovered, so the investigators believed that different blood type belonged to the perpetrator. Terry had been raped, but Leslie had not. It's thought that Leslie's death was because she had come into the basement, witnessed the attack on her sister, and had therefore been attacked, knocked unconscious from the head injuries, and then drowned to stop her from raising the alarm. It was also thought that David had perhaps arrived at the scene and again come across the perpetrator attacking one or bo both of his daughters and again had been attacked to prevent him from either stopping the attack or from raising the alarm. Once the officers who were called to the scene had designated it a crime scene, then everybody sprung into action Police and forensic vans turned up and the area was cordoned off and this obviously brought a lot of the neighbours and locals into the street to start gathering around the property to see what would what had occurred. And the police decided that they would take Kathleen and Mary away from the scene to the police station, away from the gawping onlookers and also so they could take statements from them. Whilst they were about to get into the car. Officer McGrath was tasked with escorting them to the police station. And Mary noticed that Dewitt Crawley was hanging around in the crowd with the neighbours. So Officer McGrath offered to have Dewitt get into the car with his stepmother and his half-sister and to go with them for moral support to the police station. So while they sat in the car waiting for Dewitt to come through the cordon to get into the car, Mary turns straight away to Officer McGrath and says, that's your killer. He's the man you're looking for. 
Once they're at the station and they start to question Mary further about her suspicions of her stepson, she tells the police that when Dewitt arrived at the scene, she'd noticed that he'd recently showered and changed and he was covered in a lot of talc, which was very unusual. And then she mentions that his behaviour earlier in the day when he came to collect his tools was nervous and shifty and odd. Over the coming days, members of the family also tried to speak to him about the events of the day, but he was evasive and nervous, and this caused the family to be even more suspicious. During the police investigations, the police appealed for witnesses, and three local people came forward, and all of them pointed the finger at Kathleen's half-brother, Dewitt Crawley. The first of the two witnesses were neighbours of Kathleen, they both stated that they had seen Dewitt at the property earlier in the day. Obviously, it was well established that Dewitt had visited the house twice that day. Earlier in the day, around two o'clock, when Terry had called her mother, and later at 8.30, nine o'clock, when he had arrived at Mary's house and Kathleen had accompanied him from Mary's house across to her own house to collect his tools. But both of the witnesses said that they had seen him around 5pm. This was obviously different time entirely, which would suggest that he'd actually visited the property on three occasions that day. In fact, one of the witnesses, Angela Davis, even confirmed she'd seen him visiting twice that day. The first time she'd seen him was about two o'clock. And the second time she'd seen him was about five o'clock and she could specifically differentiate the second visit because she'd actually walked past the house and had noticed him po poking at the ceiling tiles in the porch with something long. The third witness to come forward was Jessie Lee Brown III. Mr Brown knew Dewitt personally and in fact knew Terry because Dewitt had introduced his niece to Mr Brown. Mr Brown had been working at a house in the neighbourhood and had seen Dewey at around five o'clock walking towards Kathleen's house and carrying what looked like a long metal pole. Glancing across the street, he saw Terry answer the door to her uncle and saw Dewey going into Kathleen's house. A few minutes later, he had heard arguing between a man and a woman coming from the direction of the house and so he moved so that he could see what was going on and saw through the window Dewitt and Terry arguing near the front of the house. And he then saw Dewitt hit Terry across the side of her head with the metal pipe he had seen Dewitt carrying earlier. Mr Brown was quite worried about whether or not he should get involved in an altercation between an uncle and a niece, particularly as he knew Dewitt's history and was probably quite frightened of him. So he was working out what his next move should be when he saw Terry's father, David, pull up in the car and go into the house. So at that point, a man had turned up. He was no longer worried and he left the house he was working on and didn't think much more of it until later that evening when he saw Dewitt driving his brother-in-law David's car. This was very strange because it was well known that David would not let anyone else drive his car. Subsequently, Dewey was, Dewitt was arrested and charged with murdering his brother-in-law David Smith, murdering his 16-year-old niece Leslie Smith and raping and murdering his 18-year-old niece Terry Smith 
along with three counts of robbery, one count of burglary, and one count of possession of an instrument of crime, namely the metal pipe that Mr Brown had seen him carry into the scene. At trial during testimony, Milton spoke of his sacking his brother and the threats that Jewett had subsequently made against him and his family, and this was used to establish his motive for hurting Kathleen's children and her estranged husband. The prosecutors mused that Dewitt Crawley had left his tools to establish a reason to return to the house and had taken a weapon to attack Terry. However, Leslie was home and David popped by unannounced to check on his girls and he had to kill all of them. The jury also heard of Dewitt's previous manslaughter conviction when he served only five years for stabbing a young black man in 1971. He'd stabbed that man 16 times and the judge had been extremely lenient on him following that killing. In his closing statement, the prosecutor attacked that earlier lenient decision and concluded that the previous judge had the previous judge been tougher on Dewitt at the time and imposed a correct sentence that David and his daughters would still be alive. He also alluded to the previous victim being black as a factor in Dewitt only receiving a five-year prison sentence. He said in his closing statement, Ladies and gentlemen, isn't it ironic, and yes, sad, that some judge listening at how a 16-year-old was brutally stabbed 16 times, all he could come up with in his mind was that there was just an intention to hurt, not an intention to kill him. Therefore, it is less of a crime to kill a 16-year-old Negro male in West Philadelphia than it would be his counterpart in another part of the city. That's what the judge said. Let's give Mr Crawley that body. Let's say that there was a mercy shown by that judge. There was compassion. And I hope you, and I know I will, send this judge a message that had you done your job back in 1971, David Smith would be here today. Terry Smith would be here today. Leslie Smith would be here today. And I apologise for any language in that quote that may be construed as offensive. I am reading directly from the closing argument. These are not my words. Those are the words of the prosecutor. Stuart Crawley was found guilty by the jury and sentences of death were returned by the jury on each of the three murder charges. Dewitt Crawley was also found guilty of three counts of robbery and one count each of rape and possession of an instrument of crime. He was acquitted of the burglary charges, presumably as Mr Brown had seen Terry let him into the house. Following the denial of post-trial motions, consecutive sentences of imprisonment of 10 to 20 years on each count of robbery and rape and of two and a half to five years on the weapons offences were imposed. In 1986, Dewitt Crawley appealed against the sentences and made other appeals, including one of a mistrial on numerous grounds. Some of those grounds were that the witness testimony, which his lawyers claimed were unnecessary, prejudicial and inflammatory, were used, such as photos from the crime scene and the playing of the hysterical 911 tape of his stepmother Mary. There was also a point made that the remarks of the prosecutor in relation to the previous crime was prejudicial 
as the crimes were unrelated and he had already been convicted, served his sentence and was a free man. His lawyers claimed it was prejudicial in the sentencing phase as it could amount to the prosecutor emotionally blackmailing the jury into giving a death sentence because he had previously served a very lenient sentence for killing someone. However, given that all three murders occurred during a felony offence of robbery and one victim was raped, which is another felony, there were no mitigating factors in relation to the crime. The Court of Appeal upheld the previous sentences. So Dewitt Crawley's last appeal was in 1986 and I couldn't find any information as to whether or not he remains on death row or whether or not the death sentence was actually imposed. I also couldn't find any information as to what happened to Kathleen or her family. There is very little information out there. So if anybody does have any information, perhaps you lived in the area or you have any newspaper clippings or information, please visit our website, join our forum and make some notes, send some information because I would love to hear more about what happened in this story. It's incredibly tragic and it also is quite indicative of how things change in a short period of time. In the early 70s, Dewey Crawley was virtually able to walk away after brutally stabbing someone 16 times. And as the um, prosecutor alluded to, the possibility was because the victim was black. Whereas he then kills three members of his family and rapes one member of his family 15, well, less than 15 years later and only a few years after he's out of prison could that crime have been prevented so I am very interested if you do have any information I would like you to share it with our listeners and readers So thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and please feel free to visit our website, join our forum and chat with other armchair detectives and please come again soon to the next episode of With Malice of Forthought UK. Thank you.